Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the European VC. I hope you're ready for a great episode because today we're going to be talking to Jonathan from Molten. Jonathan is a partner with Molten and has been there uh, right from the beginning. And he is really an important player in our ecosystem as he's one of the main LPs. He has made more than 80 fund investments. He has 2,200 underlying portfolio companies, meaning Molten does, of course, not just <laughs> Jonathan. So you are really in for an episode. Two billion in AUM in total. This is going to be great. Let's get into it. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This is a union of values. values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. New, new beginnings. Let's start acting. Acting, 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 acting. So, Jonathan. I am so happy to have you with us today because, first of all, you are quite the giant in venture, quite the giant in, in, in the LP side. There's not many that really come with the background of knowing and speaking and investing actively in the VC space and, and then also being a, an as active LP as, as you are. As I just said, 80 fund investments. <laughs> that, is, that is incredible. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Andres. Now tell us all about how you got into venture to begin with. Gosh, uh, I think I'm part of that generation that remembers the first time that they went online. And I remember very well what happened. I went to NBA.com. Uh, I was a big, well, still is, but uh, still am, but big basketball fan. And I was afraid that the virus come out of my computer to bite me, really. That was like where we are at the time. It was in 1996, I think. And... And since that day, you know, it really was something that I kept inside me, you know, this geeky kind of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of interests. And, um, and, and I remember when I was at business school, I sent my first applications uh, for an internship, 1999, uh, and it was all VC firms. Um, and I, I got as many rejection letters. Actually, some of those firms, uh, I'm involved with them today, so you know, <laughs> it was that. Uh, but that's that's basically that was the uh, you know the, the first point, and then I will I, I spent too much time in banking, but I I learned the toolbox, and it was at a very very interesting time actually, and you know when I I thought I I got to the max of the learning curve, uh, I decided to move to VC, and that was 2009, and yeah I've been with Molten for 14 years. And what made you want to not only do VC but also do LP investments in VC? So this comes back to our IPO. When I started my career as a venture capital investor, so early 2000, uh, this is something that I say a lot, but it's true. You know, the average Series A was 3 million at 8, 9 million pre, and the B round was 5 to 7 million at, I don't know, 15, 20 million pre. And that was a game I was involved with for five, six years. And, you know, at Molten, we are very entrepreneurial, like our, the people that we are backing, actually. And we did something quite bold back in 2016, which is to decide to go public. And the reason why we did that was, was actually twofold. But the first was we believe that European tech is a long game. You know, companies stay private longer and unlocking shareholder value from seed to Series C uh, potentially takes eight to 10 years. 
uh, how do we have a model that is patient and permanent at the same time in our approach to capital? In other words, how can I uh, look at an entrepreneur in the eye and tell him, hey, if you're on your way to build a big business, we'll be supportive over time. That's our model. And that's the reason why we went public. The other reason was obviously capital. You know, tapping into uh, city money uh, was a very interesting thing. And, uh, and we thought that by being public and offering liquidity, that would be an easier uh, bridge to uh, institutional capital. So we went public. Byproduct of the IPO was that we had to go later stage. But I always scratch my head about, you know, how can I get involved with the early stage and knowing that I can't really do it directly. And this is what triggered uh, the decision to invest in funds. Uh, and my first fund was actually Carlos and Reshma back in 2020. Oh, really? That was, that was a good cool. first pick. <laughs> Very. Uh, that, let's, let's stay on the, on the thought about taking a fund public, because I think it's something that, you know, anyone in venture would always think, huh? Someone would think, why the hell would you do that? Others would think, huh, maybe I should do that. Maybe that's a, that's a way to do it. What, what would you say now, looking back, are the pros and cons of it? I think this is the right model for entrepreneurs. And I think that's the most important thing. I think we are here to serve, help entrepreneurs to grow. And the public model is, by definition, capital patient. And again, you know, I'm going back to my previous point. I think that is the most important thing to be able to recognize that as an entrepreneur scaling a company, you know, an overnight success takes many years in the making. And, you know, this is also why we have a very buoyant and active secondary market, right? Uh, GP that require liquidity, DPI to raise an next fund. We don't want to be in a situation if you are on a board of a company uh, driving that investment to have a need for liquidity at a time where, you know, the inflection point of the company hasn't happened and we know how much time it can take. So I would say, you know, the public model is definitely a good fit for this because it makes us much more patient in our approach to return of capital. And the other thing that is very interesting is in a standard LPGP model, you need to return capital to your investors. We don't have to do that. We don't have LPs, we have shareholders. And what we do, every exit, every pound from an exit of today will be recycled in the entrepreneurs of tomorrow. And I think that what makes the model very attractive. When you think about how you have kind of grown the firm, I imagine that there's a very well-written book around how to grow a firm that is in a standard GPLP model. There's a bit less of a well-described uh, uh, path for the public uh, uh, fund, yeah, at least inside venture, right? Um, what 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 has been your like learnings from from that and your reflections on that? Is the playbook as different as one might think, or or is it actually quite similar? I, I think that book has yet to be written, uh, and I think you know we've been public for about eight years now, and it's probably uh, we need more time to really understand in the long term how it's going to play out. But what I want to say is, uh, I think it ha it hasn't it doesn't change the way we talk to entrepreneurs and we invest in companies. You know, we are, it's just a different way of raising capital and also giving us the ability to be patient and to keep funding our companies without being restricted by the end of a fund, for instance. And now, of course, you know, being public has, you know, benefits and, and also in a market like today where, you know, it's complicated, it, it also has, has its issues. But I think in the longer term, 
it's all beneficial for entrepreneurs. Uh, and you know, also being public allows us to have this platform play strategy where uh, you've said it at the very beginning, uh, you know, where we can do direct investing, that's our bread and butter, Series A+, but also have this strategy of the founder fund, which is not something that we could have done with a GPLP structure. And you, on top of that, if you add a secondary, you know, we've always been very, very opportunistic in the way we provide liquidity to entrepreneurs and also GPs and LPs. That is something that we wouldn't have been able to do with a you know, standard GPLP model. So I think it's several things. It's access to capital. It's the ability to, be, to have a long-term view. And it's also the ability to become a platform play in the venture industry. And I think that's very interesting. Now that we have had enough of an introductory talk for everyone in the audience, for those that might not know you already, uh, to really understand what if, uh, what a solid uh, investor and thinker you are in the venture space and, and, and power in the European ecosystem. I now want to, first of all, say thanks a million for joining us in the judging panel for the Pleasure European, for the European VC Awards. It's, 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 you know, we always, when we designed this, we kept saying every contest, every award show really lives and dies with its integrity. Uh, and for that reason, it was super important for us to get the best LPs that we have in the European VC space with us on the, on, on the judging panel. And your name was one of the very quick ones to surface. Um, Appreciate but that. I want to I ask you, Jonathan, why did you accept? Why, obviously, you know, yes, it was friends asking, but it was probably also because you think it was a worthwhile initiative. So I'd love to just ask you to put a few yeah, words. Yeah, no, uh, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, how can you say no to Chris, right? But uh, no, but, but to be uh, more serious, uh, there's a lot of awards out there, a lot of panels, a lot of, you know, judging competitions. But, you know, most of them in my opinion, is, is very good for self-confidence for entrepreneurs, but do they really mean anything? Uh, I think also the proliferation of those events has, has diluted the impact of, of each of them. This one is different, in my opinion. First of all, you know, it's about the quality of the judging panel. You know, here you are judged by your peers, by maybe your friends, maybe not, but by people that matter. And the integrity of the process is also very important. You know, this is not about, not only about winning something. This is about appearing on the radar screen of very serious people. And, you know, I think it's not just an award for ego glorification or, uh, or a nice PR. It actually really means something. And I was super happy to see so many uh, engaging GPs in the nomination process and great name. The quality of the selection is really second to none. So yeah, for all those reasons, I'm very, very happy to be part of this, uh, of this panel. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And we're super thankful as well. So now with us, with us congratulating each other and slapping each other on the yeah, back. Yeah, let's stop spending flowers to each other. <laughs> That's exactly. Let's let's get into our usual question, uh, where we will ask you to to share with us a pivotal moment in your life and and how it has uh, shaped you as an investor. Yeah, so I thought about that one, uh, and it's actually a, a, an easy one uh, because it's it's really what happened. What changed everything for me was this. <laughs> and no, honestly, uh, here was, for those those only was, listening in. Um, yeah. Jonathan just uh, took his iPhone and and and, and I just it. took my iPhone. Yeah, sorry. Um, and actually, I really mean the iPhone, not the smartphone. Uh, 
I think our industry is driven by breakthrough cycles or inflection point. Uh, we are definitely going to a very important one right now with Gen AI. But I think the iPhone changed the world, right? In 2007, I was in banking. SaaS was not really a thing, actually. Uh, uh, and more importantly, we were still playing the snake game on our Nokias <laughs> or, or, or Blackberries. And the iPhone changed everything, right? Actually, you could say that the iPhone killed the phone. The phone part uh, was the least important aspect of, of the iPhone. And it really defined the smartphone uh, era, not because it was the smart, first smartphone, but because it was the first product that bundled smartphone features together with, you know, in a package with genuine mass market appeal. And it was the, the first truly device that put the internet in your hands, you know, for mainstream users. So, you know, the last 10 years have definitely been 15 years, the, the iPhone decade, I was checking the number. I think they sold 2.3 billion of them. <laughs> uh, and what's fantastic about the iPhone is that your iPhone uh, 12 or 14 works really well, but if the 15 is going out, you'll buy it anyway. That's amazing marketing. But, but the ability, the iPhone has transformed from a niche product for early adopters to a dominant economic force. And I think the important bit is that it has set up the foundations for a whole ecosystem of application which really have changed our everyday lives. You know, it's created billion dollar corporations and it rearranged existing industries and changed the world as we knew it. So when I, I, I saw all that, I understood that it was probably the time to leave banking and go on the other side of the table and start to help that ecosystem that was really blossoming, but, but still at a very nascent stage. Can I throw you a curveball here? Because you just said that... Uh... The Gen AI, we're living through the, the, the dawn of Gen AI and, and liken that to the iPhone moment. Everyone has almost, right? But I'd love to ask you, what is it that makes you think that? And, and where do you see it maybe differing? And, and, and do you think it'll be, you know, even quicker adoption or will we see something similar? When will it get? Honestly, I think that we inventors tend to think that it, AI is everywhere because we see it in the, the people that are at the forefront. But then you go and talk to an average Joe uh, in, the, in the supermarket and, and they still think that ChatGPT is a chatbot, right? I think AI will be truly uh, democratized when you're using it without knowing that you're using it. Uh, talking to a chatbot, for instance, on a, on a website for support, or actually it's already happening. What I, I, I can say about AI is that I think the acceleration from now is going to be very brutal. And again, that's why I'm talking about these breakthrough cycles, right? It's all about how you respond to a changing environment. And we had a few very interesting trends uh, recently, right? Cloud computing was, was one, for instance. But I think this one is very different because it changes the way we do things, same way the iPhone changed the way we do things. And, Having said that, I think the perception of future revenues of AI is actually much higher than what is going to be, which is why there is a lot of inflation around the asset class. But there is no doubt, no doubt that it's going to change the way we interact with machines and, and probably with each other. We we'll go on uh, down this uh, vein for a very long time. But since you are such an important player in the LP space, I want us to... I think we agreed to stop sending flowers to each other, Andreas. <laughs> yes, yes, we should. I have many beautiful flowers. So. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Take a star.
Let's get into the Take a Stand section where I will ask you to comment on a quote by Sarah Drinkwater from Common Magic. And she says, a little bit of chaos is good for you. Yeah, so this is a, a controversial one, right? Because chaos is, is by definition not good for, for anyone. But, uh, but, but I, will, I will start by saying this, you know, the, the European VC landscape is clearly shaped right now over the last 18 months by a significant slowdown, whether you look at the number of deals or, or valuation. But, but, but more importantly, I think it's a very tough time now for entrepreneurs. I was having some conversation with our GPs in our program, and some of them, actually one of them, but some of them had the same uh, you know, idea. But one of them told me that, and a very experienced GP, told me that 2023 was definitely the most painful year on the record in his venture career. And that gentleman has been going on for more than 20 years. In our broader ecosystem, we've heard stories of portfolio wipeouts and down rounds left and right, and, and, and it's brutal. But, but what is brutal is not necessarily uh, the nature of the cycle we're in. I've been in three cycles since I'm working, and I'm still there, you know. Uh, but it's, it's how quickly it has changed, you know, overnight. Two, year, two, years ago, two years ago, we were in a world where capital was very cheap, entrepreneurs' time very expensive. Almost overnight, we shifted to a completely different environment where capital all of a sudden was very scarce. And I think what is important here is how you adapt. And, and this is why, you know, a little bit of chaos is good for you. Yes, because, you know, what I'm, think, what I'm seeing right now is that best-in-class founders are always finding opportunities in a time of crisis, right? And actually, the data is pretty clear on that. If you're looking at in-crisis fund vintages compared to uh, pre-crisis fund vintages. In-crisis fund vintages are doing more than two times better than pre-crisis fund vintages. And, and, and why is that? Because, well, number one, successful founders are very quick to adjust to ensure that they are alive. You know, they're moving to survival mode. Startups survive as long as they focus on the product they serve and keep their customers happy. I mean, it might sound a bit trivial, but that's the nature of the game. But the name of the game is discipline and resilience. And what I've observed is that teams are more focused, more productive. They learn how to do more with less. They have more ability to hire talents because talent is cheaper. And scarcity uh, breeds intolerance for nonsense. So you're focusing on a thing that, 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 that matter. And, and so clearly it's a time for tough conversation. It's a time for recalibration. It's a time for protecting cash. It's a time to be disciplined for GPs with portfolio management. And some of them talk about a tech reset. What I think it has reset is the discipline of entrepreneurs, their resilience. And it has brought a new dynamic, which is profitable growth versus growth at all costs. And I think from that perspective, a little bit of chaos is good because we're going back to fundamentals, right? A company can only survive if it makes money. It's as simple as that. And we might have been, you know, in that world where this doesn't matter because there is always a next round, I think we've moved on from that and entrepreneurs have clearly understood that. And you can see this, you know, on every cash protection plan that they are doing and, and, and becoming just more resilient. I want to get into our deep dive section. And I've been looking forward to this one uh, because when I when I shared the script with you, you sent back a quote that, that I think must be mentioned here. Way too many investors, in my opinion, are focused on doing deals 
and not generating DPI. Oh, right. The uh, exit piece. Yeah. So, so for sure, let, let's dive into exit strategies now and, and, and try and give us an understanding why you as an LP would say that we have too much focus on, on, on the doing deals and too little on the exit strategy. So, yeah, so it's maybe a bit of a controversial statement. But what I, want, what, what I want to say is exit planning is vital and, you know, getting it right is more art than science. And way too many people, probably including me, are talking about the deal that they are doing, but not the deal that they are exiting. And I think exit discipline is probably underrated, but it's key. And as an investor in funds, it's important to show DPI, right? Uh, and actually, you know, Andrea, those are the two questions that I usually ask new GPs. But I wouldn't. Forty percent of our fund of our GPs in the fund of fund program are emerging managers, and my definition of emerging is first time fund. I know people have different. If you take like two or three funds, hundred percent of them are emerging, but forty percent are emerging. We are not shying away for, from backing people for the first time. But we need track record and we need evidence that, you know, they can return money to their investors. I wouldn't mistake first time fund manager for inexperienced fund manager. What we have to rely on is, is, is track record. And the two questions that I'm asking a GP right now is how long have you been in that business and what's your DPI? If you have been in that business for 20 years or 15 years and your DPI is, is, is 15%, Maybe that's not the right line of work for you. And if you've been in that business for two years and your DPI is 4X, well, it's very good, but it might have to do with luck as well. So I really try to weigh those two things. And, and why it's important? Well, it's important because paper track record has proved to be unreliable, especially in times like this, right? Uh, so the ability to generate exits and liquidity to investors is very important to me as an LP but also to me as a GP, right? Because I will be only alive in this industry if I can make money for my investors. And in the current climate, you know, plummeting valuation, high interest rates, limited pool of buyers, this is, in my opinion, what makes a good VC, right? So now the question is how you do this, how you prepare an entrepreneur for an exit or for a liquidity event. In other words, how do you unlock or maximize shareholder value for you and, and for your investors? If you want, we can go into the details, but I, I think there are several things here. One, you know, work closely with your founders as, as a GP, because, you know, unless they are repeat founders, it's very unlikely that they have experience in driving a, uh, an exit process. That's why we're here for, we've been doing this, in, in my case, for 14 years. And the other thing is, is making sure that those entrepreneurs are prepared. You know, if you want to exit, uh, there's always something that, uh, you know, keeps coming back, which says it's better to be bought rather than sold. Very true. But most of the companies are still being sold. And if you want to sell an asset, you need to be really ready for this, you know. And I'm more than happy to extrapolate on this if we have time. Um, yeah, now we have all the time in the world. That's the, what this podcast is for. So okay. please dive in. So, okay, let's dive in. So first thing, work with your founders very closely, right? They, most of the time, have no experience of, a, of an exit. And, and again, it's more art than science. Uh, but a lack of experience also means that you will make mistakes along the way. And mistakes that can be avoided if you are, if you are well prepared. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you another thing. I've read the other day 
that apparently two out of three LOIs don't happen. So even if you are getting at an LOI stage with a buyer, you only have 33% of chances of, of getting it done. Uh, so a lot can go wrong. And, and how do you mitigate this? You mitigate this by building strategic relationships with the people that can potentially buy you. It might sound odd, but I'm convinced that as a founder, you probably already know who your buyer is. You don't know what that, that you know, but they're probably already appearing on your, on your radar screen. It's pretty funny, Jonathan, because this is what I heard a lot in 20... 15 to 2017, 18, maybe 19. Companies are sold, not bought, if we actually look at reality, right? And that you want to be ahead of things with your exit strategy. Some would even say that you you want to know the buyers before you invest, you know, or you want to be at least be able to see them as the investor. It's okay that the founders don't because they're not in the business of exiting. That's not something they've done years and years and years. But if you are, at this time, uh, uh, I was at an Dust uh, uh, Industry 4.0 fund, uh, or at least many of our investments was in that space. So that was very much a space where you would say exactly what you said now. You, When you make that investment, you will have a pretty good idea who will be the buyers in the end. We spoke just before we, we, we turn on the recording here, we spoke about Sebastian from Joint Capital, who also sat very well to me when, when, I, when I was with him last week. He said, fact of the matter is that with our LP base, you know, we involve them very, very closely with our investment decisions so that it, so that they already, you know, get get to meet the founders and the founders get to meet potential clients or future clients, like customers. And if we don't end up doing the investments, well, at least we help them that way. And if we did, well, then we felt them get the first customers. So that's pretty great too, right? Yeah. Well, and uh as an LP in join, I can confirm that. Uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll go even further. If you don't know who your buyer is, maybe you should, because it's all about articulating why and how you can be strategically important for that buyer. So it's understanding what they need or it's making them understand what they need and they don't know that. But what I was driving at was then, then we came into a two-year period of 2020, 2021, beginning 2022, where you'd often hear the advice, uh, don't think about exit. Exit is so far down the road that now we're just, we're just growing. <laughs> don't you know, be obsessed with knowing the exit plan from the beginning and so on and so forth. I don't disagree with that. And again, because of our model, we're not thinking about an exit overnight, right? We have the flexibility to wait. But I think it's, uh, it, it's important to have that in mind. And I'm not saying the company will be... So no, and, and this is the important part, right? Because I think... That advice is good advice to founders uh, because they should be thinking about building. But as an investor, even at the early stage, fact of the matter is that in many cases, you actually do want to know what, what the potential buyers are. So there's a difference there. And I think that we had such inflation in people coming to market with new VC firms that all the market information to founders about how to build a company had become VC wisdom for people who hadn't built businesses or invested before. Am I, am I somewhat right in what I'm saying here? Or is yeah, no. Being a bit angry? Sure. But you, you, you said you're very right about, about building. And, you know, I, I don't... 
think that founders should have an exit in mind from day one. That's not what I'm saying. No, uh, no. What I'm saying is build your company, use your investors to help with your exit process because you don't know what you don't know. And they will also help you fix your business before going to an exit. Because there is one thing that is for sure. If there are skeletons in the closet, a buyer will find them in the due diligence. And you might not know that it's a skeleton. Uh, we can help, well, not me personally, but your, your, your investors can help you with, with that. It's also about being aligned. Most of the exits don't happen because shareholders and founders are not aligned. Alignment is not something that you create overnight. It's something that you create over time. And timing, timing is, is critical, right? Uh, in an ideal world, you would time your exit strategically to take advantage of market trends or favorable economic conditions. We are not in that environment. So how do you time your, your, your exit? This is something that is not trivial. So, you know, again, work with your founders, with your entrepreneurs as a, a, a GP and as an entrepreneur, work with your VCs. This can only be successful if it's done in collaboration. And be prepared. This is about being ready for due diligence, for financial reporting, legal compliance, have proper governance, especially if you're thinking about going public. But we can talk about that. For me, an IPO is not necessarily a, a liquidity event. Uh, but it's, it's at the end of the day, it's about creating a story, right? We are all storytellers, especially when we are selling a company. And use your, use your, your, your VCs. The question that I'm always asking myself is, would I buy my own company? And if you can't answer that question positively, it means you have to work on it more and more and again, or maybe wait. Uh, but that's a critical question. You said uh, you talked a bit about driving an exit process. This is, of course, the one place where you can maybe add some criticism to European mentoring, the state of European mentoring, that many VCs haven't tried that. Could you add some words on from your experience about what what is it that, you know, are there any resources, any 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 places where you'd say this this is actually a good resource that you should listen to or, or read or whatever? You know, what would be the things you'd say to to a GP that that you know haven't done this before and you can see they're really, really good, they're super exciting investment strategy, but they're definitely lacking on the invest or exiting experience side. Now I want to try and help them get to the next stage there. And it might be a bit controversial too here. If you look at where startup exits happen more, most frequently, it's after Series A. And I'm not saying it's at Series B. It's, 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 it's not happening after Series B. It's happening right after Series A. That's about, this is a very interesting piece of data from Carta, actually. And uh, what they're saying is about uh, in 2022, and I think 2023 is, is, is about the same thing, but 30% of the companies that had a successful exit in 2022, 2023, were post-Series A stage. Less than that, 25 or 26% was from Series B to Series X, I mean, B+. Plus. Uh, and the rest was seed and early stage. So the first piece of advice, and this is something that I'm, I'm applying to myself as well, is, uh, and by the way, just uh, and most exits happen between 100 and 300, and 300 million dollars, right? But I think because we are coming from an, an environment where valuations were very high and the bar is always higher and higher and higher, uh, everybody is going for the moonshot, for the unicorn shot. And I think this is why, you know, also we are not, probably not being opportunistic when it comes to an exit. It's perfectly okay if you're an early stage fund manager and you invest in a company at 25 or 30 million pre to sell for 250 or 300, right? 
sure, the company is doing well, and you might think that you have a shot at a billion-dollar valuation in a, in a few years, but you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, market conditions can change, acts of God, as we call them, uh, another war is striking us, investors' morale coming down. There's many reasons why it could go wrong. Uh, so what I want to say is, what does success look like? What does great look like as an investor? Go back to your initial thesis and don't forget, this is where most acquisition happen. Don't always hope for a higher price, a higher valuation. You know, greed is not good. Do you have any pointers as to how one might think through that 10x <laughs> exit scenario where you're looking at selling uh, uh, something and, and, and taking the rewards while you, you have them versus staying in. Uh, because for a long time, you've said, in, in, you know, go big or go home, right? Venture, you don't right. realize exits. I don't agree with that. Go big or go home. Yeah. I think there is a very interesting middle ground here, which still is showing decent return for investors and their LPs. I don't think it's Marmite. I don't think it's black and white. No, exactly. And that's exactly what I think uh, you hear too rarely, right? And I think that that's what we learned uh, now, or the European ecosystem learned through the, the tech reset. There's actually a good point in, in, in realizing the gains when they're there. Your question is, is, is about... Um... Any decision heuristics to try and make that call, right? Because when you're looking at the situation, how do you determine whether... Now is one, it's one of those things where I should take, I should actually realize half of it now or all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this is where I wanted to, to get to. Uh, my, my philosophy is de-risk, especially in an, in an environment right now. If you are offered secondary and you think that you might have a shot at a much bigger exit, maybe later, um, well, Recover your cost. De-risk your investment. Don't sell everything if, if you feel that you are making a mistake, but, but, but take the cash if offered. Uh, honestly, I mean, I've seen many examples where people were going for, uh, or investors or angels were going for uh, the bigger game, the bigger exit, and it never really happened. But they were offered the cash. So, you know, it's, it's never easy because, again, you don't know, right? But, um, but I think it's, it's good discipline. Yeah. And I guess what you're saying here is recover your investment or take recover home. Recover your initial cost and yeah. keep a, a bit of upside. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. or some percentage of your fund or something like that. Use some benchmark that makes your portfolio model work uh, or, or matches what you had expected and promised LPs and then say, but we're leaving yeah. a chunk in. But the, uh, the reality, Andreas, is that in, in today's environment, rounds are not oversubscribed and secondary is not as frequent as, as it used to be, uh, which, which makes the point all the more valid, right? And exits don't happen that often. Buyers are not, you know, queuing to, to buy post-series A startups. You really need to show something. You really need to show strategic value. Let's get, let's get out of this exit conversation and into our shout-out It was very interesting. Thank you for your questions. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you.
I will ask you to give a shout out to a co-investor, an LP, or someone you just love in the ecosystem. Well, you're going to love this one because I want to talk about Isomer and I don't want to talk about Isomer because uh, they are good friends of me or because they're doing an amazing job with this event or I want to talk about Isomer because, you know, our asset class is collaborative and competitive at the same time. You know, on, on the dark side of things, uh, one day you may be partnering with one of your peer, another VC firm, but the next day you might be also competing with that guy, right? And the last thing I would do, or the last thing I think any Series A or B investor would do is to openly share their pipeline with their peers. So collaboration might be possible if you're partnering on deals, but this is not the nature of the game. The nature of the game is to win the deals against each other to the extent collaborating. But on the fund of fund side, it's very different. You know, if it wasn't for government money and uh, the folks at British Business Bank or the EIF or the BPI in France, we wouldn't have a sufficiently funded early stage ecosystem. And, you know, I wouldn't be here doing my job if it wasn't for uh, those early stage fund managers because they are taking the early risk. And I think Isomer thinks the same way. And, you know, together with other people, right? Uh, and I, the list is long, but together we are contributing to building a buoyant and sufficiently funded uh, early stage ecosystem. And they are really important in that relationship. And with Chris uh, and Joe and the broader Isomer team, you know, we are VC investors, first and foremost. We speak the same language, but more, more importantly, we are sharing. I mean, I have, every time I meet an interesting fund, I call Chris, uh, or every time a GP is asking me for an introduction to Isomer, here you go. You know, there is no competition. And I think it's quite rare to see this level of collaboration and, and sharing and at junior level, because I know my colleague Mo and, and Chloe get along really well and they're also sharing the information and also at senior level. And, and frankly, you know, this is how to better help the ecosystem. And I am really, really happy that we have people like them in business. I couldn't agree more. It's a bit funny because when we first partnered up with Isomer as venture partners, David and I, everyone, and and we still meet people in the ecosystem. They're like, "Well, uh, do you, how do you manage that? Do you do you not bring uh, other LPs on, other fund of funds on the podcast then, or, or you know, isn't it competitive?" Blah blah. And I, I'm always like, "I haven't experienced that from a single one of you. I had one or two of the newer firms kind of asking, right, uh, like." What does this mean? What does that mean? You don't want to feature us anymore? And of course, it was an obvious answer. No, of course, we'd love to. Uh, what we're missing in Europe is more LPs. And the people that are the most sophisticated LPs, you know, we really need them to talk as much as we can so that we exactly. build the ecosystem. So I could not agree more with what you say. I'm super thankful that you choose to give your shout out to, to the Eismer gang. But I also think it's, it's systematic of, you know, Chris has never said anything bad about you. I think he actually said, <laughs> uh, I think he said, uh, jo Jonathan is one of the first people I call about anything. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the problem that I have with Chris is when I see him, it takes two hours and I don't see the time <laughs> passing and I've missed a few meetings. Apart from that, it's all cool. No, I mean, thank you. I appreciate that. But this is, you know, this is because we collaborate. This is because we exchange. This is because we talk. Uh, it, it's rare. I haven't seen this uh, in the direct uh, uh, side of things. Uh, 
Um, no, and I'm no. glad for this. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, I very much agree. And I think that uh, the, the maybe a similar thing, and I think you've backed many emerging managers with that strategy as well, the co-invest strategy. I'd love to ask you how you think about that strategy and whether you, you see same similar dynamic there. At least that's what I feel, and that's why I kind of naturally gravitate to liking them, yeah. right? Because they're not forced into a posture that's, that's sometimes a bit... Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm look, my perspective is that I'm seeing this ecosystem as you always have to hand over the keys to someone else, no matter where you are in that kind of uh, value chain. If you are a, a seed investor, you will hand over the keys of your companies to a Series A investor. If you're a Series A investor, you will hand over the keys to your company to someone like me doing B rounds. And we will hand over the keys to a buyer or a growth stage fund or pre-IPO investor. Uh, so you're only, you're, you're only here for a, a, a certain period of time. My goal, uh, and again, going back to that platform play, what Molten is doing, is to make sure that we have a solution for follow-on capital for all those early-stage businesses. And I know being an investor uh, on the direct side of things, how much time it takes for an entrepreneur to raise capital. It's a year on the road where you kiss frogs. I mean, with me, literally, because I'm from France, but... Uh, but it's a year that you're not spending time growing your business. It's a year you are, you know, on the road. And if we can be of help to fast track those rounds by being a partner with our funds, well, I think we have done something important. For every pound that we've committed to the fund of fund, which is about 150 million pounds, we've deployed one pound, more than one pound, actually, in the company that came from the fund of fund, originated by one of our fund partners. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's a good ratio. So it works for us. You know, we are building that bridge between the early stage world and the late stage world. And we're helping those entrepreneurs to fast track their round and spend more time on what matters to them, which is growing their business. Just before we go into, uh, into the next segment, and it's a bit connected and a weird, weird place to ask you, but I, I just thought about this whole narrative side of to retail investors on the stock market. What have that taught you in terms of making everyone understand the world of venture? Because that's, <laughs> that's a big question, right? Well, I, I would say that's our mission. You know, our mission is to democratize retail investing into our asset class. And it's also my thesis, right? That's why I invested in a, in a business called Crowdcube. I'm a proud board member for more than seven years now. It's exactly the same philosophy. How do we make our asset class attractive to more people? Uh, because a lot of, uh, of people are very curious, uh, if not excited. But I think investing in one or two companies is just not the way to do it. It's, no, exactly. it's a numbers game, right? It's about uh, being exposed to different things. That's what we do. That's what Crowdcube is doing. That's also what my esteemed colleague now, Nick Brisbane, is doing at Forward, right? And this is why we were a backer of Nick Brisbane early on, uh, not only because he was an esteemed colleague from my DFJ uh, days, DFJ Esprit days, but also because he was doing things differently. He went public with his early stage uh, model, Forward had an IPO, I think, in 2018 or 19. And I thought that it was amazing. This is exactly, you know, my philosophy, my almost like my... My, the cornerstone of our investment thesis, which is, again, to make sure that all of us have access to exciting 
venture capital opportunities because access was usually, uh, you know, uh, where uh, things went wrong. Where, oh, yeah, I would love to invest in technology. How do you find? How do I find those deals? I'm not a professional. Yeah. I'm a I'm a surgeon from London, or I'm a I'm a vet from Manchester, and I would love to invest in those companies, uh, especially the one that makes sense to me. So that's why you know we we I'm trying to encourage those 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 approaches, those models. Yeah, yeah I couldn't agree more. And uh, we actually just not too long ago had Stefan Pulse from Moonfair on the podcast as well. And of course, one of the great, very interesting play democratizes. Yeah, absolutely. Same idea. Yeah. Now let's get into the uh, three biggest learnings from the last 10 years of your life. I'm looking very much forward to this. I'll, I'll start with a professional perspective. I think we, um, we mentioned this before. Uh, so I'll go back to that. Take the cash when offered. This is the first thing that I've learned from my 14 years in, uh, in VCs. If I look back where we had to make those decisions uh, as an angel personally or as a professional investor, you know, don't settle for maybe more tomorrow. You know, de-risk your investments, take the cash if offered. Remember what great looks like. Go back to your initial investment thesis. Is that what good look like? So that's, that's, that's number one. Number two, and this is an interesting one, um, a great idea is not a business until you make the first sale. And that is something that I, I, I live by, right? Our job as venture capital investors, our IP, I would say, you know, is our ability to pick winners from the rest of them, right? That, that is our only IP. That's our product. So our job has to be almost like professional skeptics, you know, but it's, it's increasingly hard because most of the entrepreneurs we meet every day have true conviction that they will change the world. And they're also usually fantastic salesmen, right? So you can, you can sit here all day hearing those pitches and your head will spin and every opportunity uh, is exciting and tastes like the last. So, you know, it's a bit about like investigative, investigative journalism in a way. We spend our time to decipher decipher what the GP is telling us and assessing with our prism um, if it's good or, or, or not. The judge of peace here is, can you sell? You know, it's great. I agree. But can you sell? And when I started my career as a venture, as a VC investor, I, I remember those days, I thought everything was amazing. I wanted <laughs> to invest in every company that came to see me. And the next phase was actually the opposite. Everything was not didn't pass the bar. I was a skeptic. This is never going to work. And now I've got to be a bit more of a, of a balanced view. But I always go back to that point, right? It's, it's a great idea. It's not a business. unless. And I, I'm not even going to say the first million dollar, the first sale, you know, proving that you can, you can sell. So that's, that's another thing. What's the, uh, what's the fund investing equivalent in terms of it's not a great, uh, it's not a great, it's not a business until, uh, or idea is not a business until you've made a sale. Oh, but you mean uh, from a from a fund perspective? Yeah, is that it's not a great fund until you've had an exit, or no? It's not a... No, I think it's different with uh, with funds, in my opinion, because I mean, our whole game is about people. We invest in people. People are our key assets. Companies are people, and people are companies. But I think, you know, when you are investing at a later stage, it becomes very much about numbers, unit economics, addressable market, your ability to, to gain market shares. 
your ability to go back to a profitable state or be in a position where you can raise. So it's, it is about numbers. When you are investing in a fund, it's, it's only about people, especially when, you know, the track record is limited. So I think then the, uh, the answer is how, what do you do that is different? What makes you unique? You know, what is, because there's a lot of people uh, out there raising money, a lot of smart people with, you know, rested experience as operators, as venture capital investors. Some of them are, you know, even coming from a very, very different background and they're all super interesting, but they're all saying the same thing, which is we have a great network. Uh, this is what we do. What is really unique? You know, how do you, how do you stand out from, from, from the crowd? What makes you different? I think this is, you know, what, what makes me tick. Do you agree though that, that it's okay that the way you're different is actually that you're better in the sense that I think if I'm very honest, I think that the venture model, even though it is well known and quite, quite well described what you need to be good at to be a good venture investor. And sometimes, yes, you want to be etchy or you want to be able to say, this is exactly where I'm different from others. But sometimes you're just a really, really good fintech investor that's networked to all the right people. And that's what makes you different. It's not that you have to come up with something etchy and unique. It, it can also just be that if you claim that you're the best fintech investor with the best network, well, then I just need to be able to pick up my phone and call the first 10 fintech investors that I know that I and respect, and they'll all mention your name. All true. I would uh, add to that your, your ability to understand the future. You know, this is something that I, 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 I quite like. Um, entrepreneurs are the only time travelers that I know. I know why. Because most people live in the present and, and the future is actually an extension of the present. Uh, but the future is coming fast, awfully fast at us now. We talked about Gen AI before. And how do entrepreneurs win? Entrepreneurs win when they break free of the present and they fast track the future. And what happens is their ability to ride on those inflection points that we've mentioned before, we, you know, cost of AI, access to mass audience, cloud computing, and, and basically force the incumbents to react rather than, than the other way around. We're talking about those big companies out there. So as an investor, you should ask yourself the question, how do I understand the future? Because there is something that is for sure is that the next category leading companies are probably raising a seed round today. How do you, how do you understand this? You know? And at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's all about conviction. It's, it's, it's all about uh, believing in what you do. The, the, you know, it's a hindsight industry at the end of the day. So you'll know if you get it right or not uh, four or five times from now. Uh, but, but I think that's what makes you different also, is your ability to look at the future with a different type of lenses. You always hear fund investors, good fund investors, say it's about what makes you unique. And then that kind of can leave an emerging manager thinking, I'm looking at my deck and it reads... Great network, great <laughs> picking skill, great. <laughs> yeah, but if everybody is saying the same thing, how does it make you unique? Exactly, exactly. That that that's what I mean. That that it's not that you have to have, you know, you don't have to pull a bunny rabbit up of your up, up to be a good VC. Uh, yeah. It's just about what you're really really good at, 
you're really, really good at. It's not, <laughs> you're not mediocre at it. You're the fucking I, best in yeah. Europe. <laughs> Unique is one thing. It's more about what makes you different. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you had another one which we didn't cover yet. It's, I always ask why don't settle for uncertainty. I, I like that one because I think it, it speaks to your curiosity and your refusal to settle for uncertainty, which in both startup investing, but definitely in fund investing is absolutely integral. I agree. Uh, and, you know, personally, I'm always trying to make choices that put me against my own comfort zone. I think as long as you're um, uncomfortable, it means you're growing. Uncertainty is, is part of that. Again, success is about understanding uncertainty, betting on it, and getting it right. And if you get it right, what is your, the magnitude of your rightness? That is the next, the next question. People don't like uncertainty. People like their routines. Uh, but I don't, I don't think or I don't know if that's where, you know, really, truly you're put to test. I think people are much better when they're outside the comfort zone. And this is, this is again, this is your IP, your ability to get it right. Now let's get into our quickfire round because in there we have what, what, what your top tips for emerging VCs is. So we need to be able to spend some time there. <laughs> and now the quickfire round. But let's start with the first one, which is what advice would you give to your own 10-year younger self? Uh, buy more Bitcoins 10 years ago. Uh, it's probably a, a good one. I did. I buy a few, but not enough. No, more, more seriously, um, this is about trusting your talent, your ideas, your instinct. Again, in this line of work, your IP is your judgment. This is your product. This is your key asset. And if you don't trust yourself, nobody will trust yourself. But the first thing is 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 trust trust yourself, trust your talent. I'll tell you a story. Um, back in 2001, I, I tried to start my own company, my own website. It was still at school. I was doing that with a friend of mine, and it was a it was a student network, uh, very much like uh, what Facebook has was three or four years later. So what we had is uh, we, we were taking pictures of uh, people uh, in, in partying, in parties, in, in business school parties, and we gave them the ability to comment on them. Oh, you kiss that girl. Uh, and you think we didn't see you. And then we put it out there. And we could see a lot of engagement in the school. It was called Planet EM. And we started by saying, OK, maybe we have something here. And uh, we went to a few people who were trying to raise 5,000 euros. <laughs> and we failed. But I knew deep down that we had something. And again, we had all, uh, you know, the like, we, we had the like button. I like this, or I want to see more of this. And it just disappeared because we couldn't raise 5,000 euros. And then we, uh, we all went to banking and, uh, and I have a different career. And I'm looking back at this as a interesting moment of my life because I didn't trust that we had something good because I couldn't raise the money. It was not even a lot of money, right? 5,000 euros. I'm pretty sure we could have, have, have found it if we really tried. But that killed our motivation. You know, people don't believe in it. It means it's never going to work. Uh, we should have trusted more our instincts and, and what we were doing. So I think, you know, follow your dreams. Remorse is always better than regret. At least you've tried, but trust yourself. The, the other thing that I would have given myself 10 years ago is probably, you know, I think most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. Sense of urgency is always good. Uh, it's good stress, but is that really urgent? Just take a step back, 
to think carefully about things and, you know, just give yourself time. It's not a race, it's a marathon. It's a marathon with a lot of hurdles, don't get me wrong, but it's definitely not a sprint. And, and maybe I was too impatient, I was too, uh, too fast. So yeah, that's, that's what I would say. Now, what are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe for fundraising? Yeah, so we talked about this before, you know, ask yourself why you are truly differentiated, uh, what unique you bring to the table, because people will uh, be, re you know, we like that. If you don't have track record, fundraising might be an uphill battle. It's not over again. We backed people with limited track record. It exists, but, but it's not, we're not talking about 10 deals. Track record can be compensated, in my opinion, by exceptional vision and talent in many different ways. But again, what makes me really, really interested is somebody that is coming with a very different, truly unique approach. What I like to see in, uh, in GPs is what I just mentioned before, which is people that are really trusting their instinct. You know, we have something special here. Uh, I call it then I, how you execute it. I, I call it the three Ds, you know, drive, determination and discipline. Part of getting an edge is to stay focused. It's not an easy thing, actually, when, you know, uh, sectors and investment CZs overlap with each other. And, you know, you see quite a few managers going slightly off piste, which is easily understandable. Right. I think it's important also to break your own rules. Don't do it all the time because the rules matter, but, but have that flexibility. And the last thing that I would tell them is don't raise more capital than what you think you can deploy with discipline. You know, we've seen it in our program, uh, firm that have returned and raised significantly higher uh, size funds, but it doesn't necessarily mean more performance. I think what it means is less discipline. One thing is for sure, you'll be back on the road in two or three years raising for the next fund. Question that you have to ask yourself is you want to be pushed to deploy or you want to do that with with discipline and you know if i give you a, a out of 80 funds i think the average size of our fund uh, is about 70 million pounds seven zero and i think that's a good size for a two to three people investment team of course if you hire more partners and you're becoming a 10 people team you can deploy more capital but again it's it's all about it's all about discipline now what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned in venture Again, this is going to be controversial, but I think the most counterintuitive thing in a in an industry where ego is is usually very high is that we are not the kings of the lands. VCs are not the kings of the lands. We just count it. This is all about entrepreneurs, uh, and this is all about our ability to help them grow their business, hire people. Obviously, we're not philanthropists, so we need an exit at some point, right? We most of the time we are making it about ourselves. And, and I don't think that should be the case, which is why, you know, I usually shy away from those events, podcasts and stuff like that, because it's not about me. It's about my entrepreneurs. It's about the people that I'm trying to serve and help. That is so true in mainstream media as well. I think we're accepted a little bit because we only talk to investors for other investors to hear. So that's what we should spotlight. But I, I fucking hate hearing the dragon's den and lion lion's den and whatever these programs are called where you have you even see front page pictures of the investor in the middle and then the founder group gathered around them like it, this was about the investor making the bet what the fuck thank you 
Thank you. I couldn't agree more with this. It's about them. Everything that we're doing is about is about them. Before we close, I want to ask you to give us your uncommon belief that most people around you do not believe in. That's the uh, one sentence that you you yeah, asked. That's exactly. But I think uh, and we will also finish on a very controversial thing, which goes back to what I was saying before, right? Uh, and my statement is the unit of ego per dollar return is higher in VC than in any other asset class. Explain. You talk to um, many different people looking for capital, right? And the only thing that they are, and they're all great, and I'm sure they're great, right? But the only thing they talk about is track record, track record, track record. When it comes to dollar returns, there's not a lot of people actually in our ecosystem that have a truly great long-standing track record of returning proper capital to their LPs, especially in the early stage uh, world. There are a few, and I'm, I'm glad to say that we've backed them. Um, <laughs> but, but what I'm hearing is a disproportionate sales pitch compared to what actually has been done, which makes me think about this, this, this line, right? You know, you're talking to people and you're like, wow, that's amazing. You must be so rich. Well, actually, no, I haven't returned a single dollar to my investors. Okay. Well, maybe the sales pitch is a bit too pushy. I, I don't know. But this is something that I truly believe in. Uh, and again, it will be controversial. I'll get killed for that online, but that's okay. Jonathan, thank you so much for speaking some truth with us here. Thank you so much for being a judge at the European VC Awards. Everyone tuning in, please do go and nominate all the great VCs that you believe we have in the ecosystem. Please do. Are... This is important. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much, everyone who tuned in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. If you did, do make sure to drop a review, go on EUVC and subscribe if you haven't done so already. Thank you. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values, values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting. 